welcome to Bridal Love Ministries podcast with Poppy Hopeflish teaching on Song of Songs. Good evening, warrior brides. We are still busy with the dancing warrior bride, that's you. And tonight we'll do part two of chapter six. In chapter six, verses four to ten, we have a description of why he calls her an awesome army with banners. In verse 10, Holy Spirit confirms this when he asks, Who is this coming out of the wilderness, awesome as an army with banners? These seven verses are all about spiritual warfare. The bridegroom wants to take you even deeper tonight, my friend. But don't worry, it's all being done through the lens of intimacy. So let's begin by listening to the text of chapter 6 again. Where has your beloved gone, O fairest among women? Where has your beloved turned aside, that we may seek him with you? My beloved has gone to his garden, to the beds of spices, to feed his flock in the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He feeds his flock among the lilies. O oh my love, you are as beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me, for they have overcome me. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins, and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. There are sixty queens and eighty concubines, and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. Return, return, O Shulamite! Return, return that we may look upon you. What would you see in the Shulamite, as it were, the dance of the two camps? Beloved, do you remember in chapter 2 verse 4, Jesus, your heavenly bridegroom, raised his banner over you, the banner of love. She, you, said, He brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. Here we see again, to accept, and believe in Jesus' love for you, to declare that he loves you, to say, I am my beloved's and he is mine, chapter 6 verse 3, is what makes you strong, holy and awesome in his eyes. This knowledge of who you are in him, walking in your authority, knowing this authority was given to you by the one who said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Matthew 28 verse 18. 
This is what terrifies the enemy. So let's go back to chapter 6 verse 5. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep which have come up from the washing. Everyone bears twins and none is barren among them. Like a piece of pomegranate are your temples behind your veil. In these verses he repeats his previous description of her devotion, her maturity in the word and her emotional maturity. Again he mentions her long hair which speaks of the fact that she is set apart for him. All her teeth have twins, prophetic of the double anointing that rests upon her. And the piece of pomegranate, slowly reddening under his tender care, speaks of her emotions, her willingness to trust him with her emotions. The enemy often leads us into this trap, that we must always behave and act as if we have it all together. Because that is what a good, strong Christian must do, when in fact we don't. We feel we can't show him that we are tired or disappointed or angry, etc. Because that's not how a Christian should behave. We know how to behave in public and to do and say the right things, although we are hurting. But we can and we must tell him how we feel. We are quick to speak the, I forgive him or I forgive her because he she does not know what he or she said or did. And then we try to forget all about it. But tonight, beloved, he wants you to give all your emotions to him. He knows all about it anyway. But when you give it to him and allow yourself to cry, something wonderful happens. There is an exchange deal taking place. He says in Isaiah 61 verse 3, I'll give you beauty for ashes. The oil of joy for your mourning and a garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that is upon you. Beloved, give him your ashes, your dreams, your prophecies, everything you treasured of which only the ashes remained. Give him your mourning, surrender it in exchange for his oil of joy and give him your depression, your apathy, your slumbering spirit or your soul-driven performance of trying to act sound and fake that all is okay, when in fact it is not. The moment you trust him with your emotions, especially the ones you have hidden away for many years and even placed a lid on them, that moment is when he calls you perfect. Verse 9. This is because he sees from the end to the beginning. He told you that in chapter 1, remember? He said, declaring the end and the result from the beginning. And from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure and purpose. He always sees you as you will be in the end, and treats you like that. Verse 6.8 there are sixty queens and eighty concubines and virgins without number. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughter saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. 
There are many nobles and many women in a king's court. Compare this with Esther and Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines. David had five wives, but Bathsheba was his favorite. This is exactly how Jesus feels about his bride. She stands out from the others because she is her mother's, the church, favorite. And she has dove's eyes and she gets the crowns. Remember chapter 4. There's a whole crowd of different creatures in King Jesus' court, such as the archangels, cherubs, seraphim in different ranks, and the four living creatures at the throne in Revelation 4. But the bride stands out above them all. The bride is called the perfect spotless one, and he is very proud of her beauty and her maturity, and he desires none other for himself. Let's read that in Ephesians 4, 11 to 15. And his gifts were varied. He himself appointed and gave men to us, some to be apostles, special messengers, some prophets, inspired preachers and expounders, some evangelists, preachers of the gospel, traveling missionaries, and some pastors, shepherds of his flock and teachers. His intention was the perfecting and the full equipping of the saints, his consecrated people, that they should do the work of ministering towards building up Christ's body, the church, that it might develop until we all attain oneness in faith and in the comprehension of the full and accurate knowledge of the Son of God, and that we might arrive at really mature manhood, the completeness of personality, which is nothing less than the standard height of Christ's own perfection, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ and the completeness found in him. This is so that we may no longer be children, tossed like ships to and fro between changed guts of teaching and wavering with every changing wind of doctrine that we may not become the prey of the cunning and cleverness of unscrupulous men, gamblers engaged in every shifting form of trickery in inventing errors to mislead. So rather let our live our lives, lovingly express the truth in all things, speaking truly, dealing truly, living truly. Enfolded in love, let us grow up in every way, and in all things into him who is the head, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. We understand that all these people are gifts from God. The apostles, the special messengers, the prophets who are inspired preachers and expounders, the evangelists who preach the gospel or travel, traveling missionaries, the pastors who shepherd the flock and the teachers. All five of these gifts is necessary to do what? To equip the saints, the daughters of Jerusalem, so that they would start to do the work of ministering towards building up Christ's body. We must stop expecting the pastor to do all the work of building up the body of Christ. It's the people. Why is this so important? 
Because the bridegroom wants us all to attain oneness in faith. That we would believe the same things. And a oneness in the comprehension of the full accurate knowledge of the Son of God. So that we all will come to mature manhood. I often hear people say, I want to become a spiritual giant. I don't know where that comes from. Ephesians 4 says we must come to maturity. This maturity is the completeness of personality. Your personality will only be complete when we go for the standard height of Christ's own perfection, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a song, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwelleth in my soul, and we are complete in him. Why do we need to get to maturity? The bride is a mature bride, but she does not distance herself because of that. She's very busy getting other daughters of Jerusalem together, helping them to also come to the full stature of the fullness of Christ. So then we will all no longer be children, tossed like ships to and fro, before to change gusts of teaching. There's so many teachings coming around, it's like, Every month there is a new flavor. Stick to the word. Don't waver with every changing wind of doctrine. Don't become the prey of cunning, cleverless, unscrupulous men. They are shifting from trickery to trickery and inventing errors to mislead you. How then should we live? Live your life lovingly, expressing the truth in all things. Speak truly. Deal with people truly. Live truth. So that the people will know, the daughters will know, if I need an answer on something, I can go to this bride or that bride. He or she will tell me the truth, even if it hurts. And that truth will be enfolded in love. And so... Together we all will grow up in every way and in all things. Unto what? Unto him who is the head, Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. In Ephesians 5, 26 and 27 we read, He wants us to do all this in Ephesians 4, so that he might sanctify us, sanctified her, the bride, having cleansed her, by the washing of the water with the word. Why? So that he might present us, me and you, the church, the bride, to himself in glorious splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such things, and that she might be holy and faultless. And remember, he already sees you like that. The daughters of Jerusalem admire the bride, they are inspired to become brides themselves by watching her example. And this is working because in verse 10, Holy Spirit comes with the rhetorical question again. And he asks, Who is she who looks forth as the morning, fair as the moon, clear as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? Holy Spirit is asking this question. Who is coming out of the wilderness? He compares her with the dawn. Dawn always speaks of a new beginning, 
and also victory. I think when we, when we get out of this lockdown, we might look like the bride coming out of the wilderness and it will be dawn, it will be a new beginning, not as the world says, but a new beginning because of the time of intimacy with Christ. It will also be a new beginning of victory. In Proverbs 4.18 we read, The path of the uncompromisingly just and righteous is like the light of dawn that shines more and more brighter and clearer until it reaches its full strength and glory in that perfect day. What day is that perfect day? Of course, the day of the rapture, to be prepared. What we understand here is as we grow into maturity and we do not compromise and we become righteous, we will be like the dawn. And we will shine more and more, brighter and clearer, because of His glory in us and upon us. And we will reach our full strength and glory, shining in full strength and glory, on the perfect day of the rapture, because then we will get our glorified bodies. To be prepared? Yes, the Father is preparing us for that day. He's preparing that day for us. When we shine like this, the shadows of compromise have disappeared. Do you remember how many compromise and shadows she still had in chapter 1? It's now disappearing before the light of the rising sun of righteousness. He says she's like the moon. The moon reflects the light of the sun, the sun of righteousness. In Revelation 12, 1 we read, and a great sign, a wonder, a warning of future events of ominous significance appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with a moon under her feet, and with a crown like a garland tiara of twelve stars on her head. We know this is Israel, who gave birth to Jesus, but it's also the bride in the New Testament. We are the same. We are also like a sign, like a wonder. We are clothed with the sun. That's why we shine like that. That's why he compares her with that. Clothed in the light of the sun. This radiance of the bride is very important for spiritual warfare. Philippians 2.15 says, That you may show yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated, children of God without blemish, faultless, unrebukable in the midst of a crooked and a wicked generation, people who are spiritually perverted and perverse, and among whom you are seen as bright lights, stars or beacons shining out clearly in this dark world. Isn't this so applicable to what we are living now? That we will remain blameless, innocent, uncontaminated? The world is doing everything, the new world order is doing everything to get us contaminated. But he says stay apart, separate from that, so that you can shine brighter and brighter and be a beacon of light to those who are searching. Malachi 4.2 we read, But unto you who revere and worshipfully fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings and his beams, and you shall go forth and gamble like calves released from the stall and leap for joy. 
in this single verse, we see again the end of the church age and the beginning of the peace reign. Right now, all we do is worshipfully fearing his name. And the Son of Righteousness himself, Jesus, is arising upon us with healing in his wings and in his beams. And then, when we enter the next dispensation, we will be like calves, forth gambling like calves, released from the stall and leap for joy. Maybe we will also do this when the lockdown is lifted. We will also jump for joy like calves. In 1 Peter 1 verse 2 and in Ephesians 3, 9, 11, we read that the angels are watching the church in an effort to understand this great wisdom of God. Here on earth she must teach and lead the unbeliever, the daughters of Jerusalem, to Christ. And in heaven she will teach and judge the angels with Jesus. Let's read Ephesians 3, 9 to 11. Also to enlighten all men and make plain to them what is the plan regarding the Gentiles and providing for the salvation of all men, of the mystery kept hidden through the ages and concealed until now. It was hidden in the mind of God who created all things by Christ Jesus. And the purpose of this hidden mystery is that through the church, I want to say through the bride, the complicated, many-sided wisdom of God in all its infinite variety and innumerable aspects might now be made known to the angelic rulers and authorities, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly sphere. And this is in accordance with the terms of the eternal and timeless purpose which he has realized and carried into effect in the person of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We've often heard God knows the end from the beginning. And one of the plans he had is that all men must know. He wants to make it plain to them. That's his plan. That there's a mystery that he kept hidden through the ages. And we are in this time and fast nearing the finalization of this, what he concealed. He wants to show Satan and all his demons that through the church, through the bride, he will show his wisdom. You see, God can deal with the enemy and all his principalities in a second. But he chooses to use this weak lily that get afraid, her stem is very, very thin and breakable. And yet, he says, I'll use her. I'll use my weak right to show the enemy my complicated, many-sided wisdom in all its infinite varieties and in its innumerable aspects. This is how he will humble and come back at Satan, showing him, my bride, my children, whom you have tortured and accused and attacked, I will use her to show you my wisdom. I will use her against you because I will give to her the authority which my father gave to me. 
Now we understand. This is a mystery. Paul takes it even further in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 and 3. He says to them, Do you not know that the saints, the believers, they will one day judge and govern the world? What's that one day? The peace reign. And if the world itself is to be judged and ruled by you, are you now unworthy and incompetent to try such petty matters of the smallest courts of justice? He says we must stop our bickering with each other because we must remember the authority and the responsibility that's awaiting us in the peace reign to judge and govern the world. So we must practice now to settle our arguments with each other. And then he says in verse 3, And do you not know that we Christians are to judge the very angels and pronounce opinion between right and wrong for them? How much more then as to matters pertaining to this world and of this life only? It's like he always raises the standard. Just when we think, okay, I've got it. He tells you of even more responsibility waiting for us and with which he is training us for reigning. The bride's banners are described as awesome, terrible and frightening. She's grown into a spiritual giant. See, in total, corporate, not single. And the enemy is petrified because she overcomes her own sin as well as the attacks of darkness. And the bridegroom rejoices in her imposing presence because it testifies of her royal authority that flows from her unity with him. She is now a terrible weapon in God's hand against Satan's forces. And her glory and her radiance are a tangible sign of her spiritual authority. And this authority is what makes her appear as an entire army in the spirit. He wants to brag about her in the same way God did about Job. Beloved, the bride, me and you, we are all like a Joseph. God takes us out of the prison of the world and then places the king's ring of authority on our finger. And we are also all like an Esther. We are outcasts, chosen by the father to be a bride for his son so that we can be seated at his banqueting table right next to him. This is what the disciples wanted, namely to sit at his right and at his left. But just like at any other wedding, the bride will be the one to sit closest to him. We read about that in Ephesians 2, 5-7. Even when we were dead, slain by our own shortcomings and trespasses, he already made us alive together in fellowship and in union with Christ. He gave us the very life of Christ himself, the same new life with which he quickened him. For it's by grace, his favor and mercy, which you did not deserve, that you are saved, beloved, and that you are delivered from judgment, and that you are made a partaker of Christ's salvation. And he raised us up together with him, and made us sit down together, gave us joint seating with him in the heavenly sphere by virtue of our being in Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Why did he do this? 
He did this that he might clearly demonstrate through the ages to come. That means the age where we are in the church age, the millennium, thousand year age and eternity to come. He wants to show clearly, he wants to demonstrate in all the ages the immeasurable, limitless, surpassing riches of his free grace, his unmerited favor, his kindness and his goodness of heart towards us in Christ Jesus. What a wonderful time is awaiting us. The best is yet to come. Do you agree? Verse 11, she says, I went down to the garden of nuts to see the verdure of the valley, to see whether the vine had budded and the pomegranates had bloomed. The garden is mentioned nine times altogether in Song of Songs. And there's progression from her garden to his garden and then to our garden. The fruit increases every time. The bride now mentions the nuts, the vineyards and the pomegranates. The vineyards and the pomegranate trees are full of blossoms, as we will see in chapter 7 verse 12. And the garden becomes the bride's place of retreat for intercession. The potential nutrition of the nuts is only released once the nut is dry and smashed open. See John 12:24. Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. She's now becoming used to the idea of dying to self. That's why she's interested in the garden of nuts. Beloved, how are you doing in dying to self? Going nuts. <laughs> the trees represent the ministries within the church that also need to walk the road of dying to self so that their fruit and oil can come forth for the benefit of others. Often we think it's the end of the world when it looks like a ministry is dying. But a ministry is people. And then there's some dying to self that he wants to do. And he does not care about the ministry. He cares about you. The pomegranates speak of her emotions which are blossoming for her king. She now enters the garden on her own. She's not shy and timid anymore. She goes as someone who knows her bridegroom and knows that she's known by him. She has counted the cost. She left everything to follow him and now knows her inheritance in him. Matthew nineteen twenty-eight to 29 Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new age... This now is the real new age, not the new age of the new world order. You see, Satan stole that as well. Counterfeit. Jesus used these words first. He said, in the new age, the messianic rebirth of the world. That's the thousand year peace reign. When the son of man shall sit down on the throne of his glory, you who have become my disciples, who sided with my party, who followed me, you will also sit on twelve thrones and judge the twelve tribes of Israel. And anyone and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive many 
even a hundred times more, and will inherit eternal life. The garden is in a valley which represents the lost world. It is a valley of decision where each one must choose between remaining in their lost condition, whether in or outside of the church, yes, that's what's happening, or becoming a bride. We see this in Joel 3 verse 14. It says, Multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The return of the Lord is near. The rapture that day. The day of the return, that's when God comes with his wrath. It's a difference, the appearance of Jesus. When he appears, he's just in the sky to come and fetch his bride. When he returns, he will land openly on the mountain of olives in Israel. But the two are linked together because the rapture is a wake-up call to the world. Do you know how quickly seven years can pass? I think in heaven, the seven years will just feel like seven minutes, maybe. The lily, we studied the lily in chapter 2, verse 2, grows in the valleys where the bridegroom discovered her in the first place, in the valleys and the muddy places, and he took her from there and changed her in a pure white lily of purity. The bride is interested in the king's garden. She wants to see the verger because she wants to see everything that happens in her bridegroom's garden. She rejoices with him in every new flower, a new believer, because she's one with him. She encourages those who struggle. She has great patience with him. She remember she was like that as well. And she takes an interest in the ministries of others because she has realized that every ministry functions within the king's great garden. She gets so excited she moves with speed that in verse 12 she says, Before I was even aware, my soul had made me as the chariots of my noble people. The bride is overwhelmed with a desire for the well-being of every tree and plant in this garden. Her eagerness compels her soul to move from one to the next with the speed of a chariot. She has the same enthusiasm for every new ministry or every young believer who's starting out that the bridegroom had for her when she was still immature. She sees their potential and she encourages them to go deeper into intimacy with him. She moves with speed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Reminds us of Acts 8 verse 39. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly caught away Philip, and Enoch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Remember that was when the Lord told Philip to go to the desert in the middle of the night and wait there and a wagon would come and then the Enoch came and he was studying Isaiah 53 and he wanted to know who's this man talking about himself or someone else and Philip took the opportunity shared the gospel and somewhere along the line he must have mentioned the water baptism as well because the next moment the eunuch saw a pool and said why can't I be baptized now that's how important it is that you should be baptized as soon as you have given your heart to the Lord 
the moment you got saved, the next thing is a step of obedience to get baptized. If you didn't do it then, and you study Song of Songs, and you realize part of the bride is this act of obedience to get water baptized. When she says her soul has given her the speed of a chariot, she moves with the speed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is prophecy fulfilled because in chapter 1 verse 9, he said that he would fill her spirit with the strength of a horse. Remember? A chariot is often pulled by more than one horse. That is the speed and the strength of her spirit now. She overflows with love for others. The love of God has been poured out in her heart in contrast to the anger and the jealousy of the watchmen of the city. If they keep on in their anger and jealousy, hatred and the spirit of death will be poured into their hearts. She loves the body of Christ as Joseph loved his brothers, no matter what they did to her. There's no bitterness, remember chapter 5. She sees the potential of the bridegroom's love in those who are difficult to love. She simply loves them with the love of the Father, having compassion for their inability to love and be loved at this stage. For she herself had been like them once. In 2 Corinthians 5, 13-17, we read, For if we are beside ourselves, mad as some say, it is for God and it concerns Him. And if we are in our right mind, it is for your benefit. For the love of Christ controls and urges and impels us, because we are of the opinion and conviction that, if one died for all, then all died. And He died for all, so that all those who live might live no longer to and for themselves, but to and for Him who died and was raised again for their sake. Consequently, from now on, we estimate and regard no one from a pure human point of view in terms of natural standards of value. No. Even though we once did estimate Christ from a human viewpoint and as a mere man, yet now, we have such knowledge of him that we know him no longer in terms of the flesh. Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ, the Messiah, he is a new creation, a new creature altogether. His DNA has been changed. And the old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. Behold, the fresh and the new has come. You see, there's times where we act as if we are mad beside ourselves. And other people may look at you and judge you when you boast about your God and you openly celebrate Him and you blow the ram's horn and you dance and you shout and they could look at you and judge you as you, you're mad. But those with discernment, those who also walk this road of the bride, will know this is all unto God and it concerns Him. If you see somebody act like this, don't judge. Rather ask for discernment. And then there are times when you are in your right mind, like tonight, to study and understand. You're crying out for wisdom and understanding. And it's also unto God. As long as you can say, it's the love of Christ that controls me 
and urges me and impels me. That's how the bride operates. She's being controlled by him. Holy Spirit urges her to do things and impels her. And then, if Christ died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live might live no longer to and for themselves. That self-centeredness, he dealt with that in her. I believe this coronavirus and lockdown is really working in our lives that we no longer just live to and for ourselves. Often we live for ourselves and for God, but we forget about our neighbor. While he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul and all your strength and your neighbor as yourself. And I think he's working on that. But to and for him who died and was raised again for their sake. So beloved, after all this that we heard, there's no way that we can estimate and regard others now from a purely human point. Of course we fail and we do that. And you often have to say, I'm sorry Lord, forgive me. I looked at this person from a purely human point and I judged this person. You can't use the worldly standards to judge. We did it, but now we have knowledge of him, such knowledge that we know him no longer in terms of the flesh. And then you hear believers saying, we know each other by the Spirit. That's what he is talking about. Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ, he is a new creation. Welcome, bright beloved, you are a new creation. Your previous moral spiritual condition has passed away. The fresh and the new has come. In verse 13, the daughters of Jerusalem call her, Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. They ask her four times to remain with them. They have learned much from her example. They want more impartation, but she refers to be in the garden with him. She feels that her season with him is over. The girls are not mature enough to see him through the eyes of faith yet, and they want her to help them. She's been helping them for a long time now, since chapter... But the bride, however, knows that they must not look to her, but to him, the bridegroom himself. Because in Hebrew 12, 2 we read, Looking away from all that will distract to Jesus, who is the leader and the source of our faith, giving the first incentive for our belief, and who is also its finisher, bringing it to maturity and perfection. He, for the joy of obtaining the prize that was set before him, endured the cross, despising and ignoring the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. She realizes the bridegroom will always be the one who is the leader and the source of your faith. He gives the first incentive, so he is the author and the finisher of their faith. They can't look to her anymore. She'll be in the way of Holy Spirit. So she actually helps them by leaving. In the same way that the bridegroom helped her by leaving. 
so that she had to go to seek him. So in Acts 20 we read verse 31. Therefore be always alert and on your guard, being mindful that for three years I never stopped night or day seriously to admonish and advise and exhort you one by one with tears. It goes on to say, and now I commit you to God and to his word. So when you have ministered to a group or you had a cell group or a Bible study group and you know Holy Spirit is telling you the season is over, don't stay longer. You'll be in the way of the Holy Spirit. And it's often when everything is just going so smooth and wonderful and, and you just feel like sitting back a bit when he tells you it's time to move on. Normally it's three years and that's because Paul said for three years he taught them night and day. He admonished them, he advised them, he exhorted them one by one with tears. But he knows he must leave now. He hands them over to the bridegroom who is the author and finisher of their faith. The bride is from the city of Shunem, peace. Shunammite means peacemaker and Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus and his bride both have the same name because they have become one. In Matthew 5, 9 we read, Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called children of God. The watchman gets very irritated when they hear the daughters calling four times, Return that we may look upon you. They are jealous. They want them to look upon them. And therefore they ask the daughters, What do you see in the Shulamit? As it were, the dance of the two camps? The pleading of the daughters irritates them. They become sarcastic. They feel threatened and they are jealous of the respect that the bride commands. They want to prevent her from being received or honoured in any way. They do not like the attention that a lifestyle of repentance Purity and holiness is attracting. Those who are against a radical passion for God always feel confronted and always will overreact. A life of consecration is not always comfortable to the flesh. But the Father says, Be holy because I am holy. The watchman of the city implies she is a troublemaker, one who causes division wherever she goes. Well, Jesus says that he will bring division between those who are in right standing with him and those who are not. He never brings division between the mature and the immature believer, for he knows and searches the motives of every heart. This is part of your journey that you will be called a troublemaker, one who causes division, but the division is between those who are in right standing with him and those who are not. Compare it with Paul in Acts 17 verse 6. But when they failed to find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, crying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. They were on their way to arrest Paul, but they couldn't find him, so they took Paul's friends who accompanied him, Jason and some of the others. And their words were, these men, not just Paul alone, but also those who were with him, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. Beloved, as a mature bride, the same things will be said of you. 
You turn the world upside down, and we should, because the world is not on its right side. This division that Paul caused is the same kind of division that Jesus brings. He said, if you are neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm, he will vomit you out of his mouth, Revelation 3.16. The bride, on the other hand, is burning hot for Jesus, and this irritates the leaders. The dance of the two camps, the two armies, is also called the dance of Mannerheim. There are different levels of interpretation. First, it's the literal city of Mannerheim, where the conflict between Jacob and Esau originated. From there, we go to the second level. It's a dance of spiritual warfare. There's a military type of interaction between Satan and the Holy Spirit. Praise and worship are the strongest forms of spiritual warfare. And the bride achieves maturity in Christ when she starts to dance on the mountain tops, on the places of danger. History proves that we were meant to dance to the honor and glory of God. He made us like that. Compare this with Miriam. She always led the dancing. David danced. And thirdly, this Mannerheim also speaks of the division between the two camps within the body of Christ. Good example of this is King Saul's attacks on David. Spiritual warfare is often the result of jealous individuals attacking those who are trying to pursue a lifestyle of holiness. There is a conflict between the flesh and the spirit. David never tried to kill Saul. He tried to kill David. But it's a dance. David is doing a dance of spiritual warfare and thus he is staying out of Saul's way while Saul intensifies his bloodthirsty pursuit. But God, then God intervenes. On the fourth level, Mannerheim refers to the development of the bride. The child of God must come to a point in praise and worship where you consecrate your body as a living, pleasing sacrifice unto God, as we read in Romans 12, 1. This is when the bride dances for him, that's usually the first level, first camp. That's more uh, dancing ministry where there is a ministry to the body and to the Lord. But he wants to go deeper. He wants the second level, the highest level of intimacy is when you learn to dance with him. For he is the Lord of the dance. We've said a lot. Bear with me if we um, go over the time again. What I'm sharing now is what the Lord gave me at 3 o'clock this morning. It's like he's very, very serious to impart as much authority to you tonight to be a dancing warrior bride. He said to me, share this knowing it's your only chance to give this message to some people. May they receive it knowing it's my only chance to get it tonight. To receive this and to receive the impartation of the warrior dancing bride. Let's summarize. What have we heard so far? From chapter 1 to chapter 6. You are loved by God your Father. And I want you to repeat when you hear the words say, 
Yes, I'm loved by God, my Father. You are the bride of Christ. You are covered with Jesus' blood. You have clothed yourself with Jesus. You are wearing your armor which your Father gave you. You walk underneath Jesus' banner of love for you. On the banner these words are printed, This is my beloved bride with whom I am well pleased. You are shining as the sun because his glory is upon you. You have been set apart by Jesus for Jesus. You carry a double anointing, the double teeth, the double breasts. That's the anointing of John the Baptist who was a forerunner for Christ. He had to prepare the way of the Lord and he had to wake up the sleepers. Beloved, so must you. You also carry the anointing of Elijah the prophet to be bold, to take up your position on Mount Carmel, place of spiritual warfare. Remember, we did the mountains. Mountain is also a place of spiritual warfare. So with the anointing of Elijah the prophet, you must be bold. You must take up your position on Mount Carmel. You must declare to the confused masses, Choose you this day which God is the real God. The God of this world which have the spirit of Antichrist or the God of the Holy Bible, namely the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Beloved, this message is urgent. I feel the Lord says I must repeat this one. Like Selah, pause and think of this. And answer, yes, yes. You also carry the anointing of Elijah the prophet to be bold, to take up your position, to stand and not be moved. Stand on this Mount Carmel, this place of spiritual warfare. Declare to the confused masses, the people, Choose you this day which God is the real God, the God of this world, which have the spirit of Antichrist, or the God of the Holy Bible, namely the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are wearing a bridal veil because he betrothed himself to you in the desert. And now you are coming out of the wilderness where you have been tested and tried and you are walking with a limp. You will see that in chapter 8 verse 5. Beloved, by the way, never trust a person or a bride who walks without a limp. This person may mean well, but have not yet wrestled with God as Jacob did. The brides recognize each other by walking with a limp. And now, because you know these things, and you are walking in these things, you are terrifying to the enemy. Not because of who you are, or what you did, but because of the fact that you've become one in spirit with your bridegroom Jesus. That terrifies the enemy. The daughters of Jerusalem, who too are born to be citizens of Jerusalem, although they might not even know it yet. But they have watched your example. They are learning from you, even though you stumble. They still learn from you. And this terrifies 
and angers the enemy even more. When you walk the road of intimacy, of holiness and righteousness, he will not come with obvious attacks against you so much anymore, but he will try to attack your character, working through people or an organization or a person with worldly influence. His aim is to diminish your influence. That's what the watchmen of the city did, the political and spiritual leaders of the city. They see this. It irritates and angers them when you walk in your spiritual authority. That's why they ask the daughters, What do you see in her? She's just a troublemaker and causes division. But the bride has learned through many trials and tribulations how to handle this. Chapter 5, remember? She does not answer them. She did testify to them on two occasions, one in chapter 3, verse 3, where she asked them, the spiritual authorities, Have you seen the one I love? They should have asked her, Who's the one you love? But they flatly ignored her. The second time in chapter 5, verse 7, where she sought him desperately, passionately, they struck her, they wounded her, and they stripped her veil, her spiritual covering, from her. But she did not retaliate. She did not speak a word. She just walked on, bruised and wounded. And then she testified to her friends, the daughters of Jerusalem. What did she do? Beloved, she acted like Jesus. When he was questioned by the spiritual authorities, the Pharisees and the high priest, he answered them not a word. His time to testify to them was over. They have heard him spoke many times. They asked him trick questions and he answered them with questions which revealed who he was, if they really wanted to know. And then until there was no more time, Jesus did speak to Pilate, though. He answered Pilate with a question. See John eighteen thirty-seven. No wonder Jesus warns us, Today, if you hear my word, do not harden your heart. Hebrews 3, verse 50. He's saying the same to all the lukewarm people, the daughters of Jerusalem, the people to whom you testify. Holy Spirit is whispering in their ears today when you hear my word coming from this one or that one. Even somebody you didn't really uh, value much. But it's my words in her mouth. Do not harden your heart. Beloved, we must do the same. We must testify by and through our love for Jesus to a hurting, broken, confused world whether they want to hear us or not. For soon, our time to testify will be over when he comes for us. And when we testify like this, passionately, intimately, those who are seeking, who are really seeking with their whole heart, they will hear the spiritual substance flowing from your mouth and heart. Their slumbering spirits will wake up and they will begin to ask questions as the daughters did. What is he more than any other God? And then, where is he? 
Questions are very important, my friend. Father God and Jesus often asked questions when he wanted to engage with someone. He would show the prophets a vision and then ask, What do you see? After showing them the vision. And in Revelation 4, the angel asks John, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And in Revelation 7, 14, the angel asks John, Who are those people with the white clothes on the glossy sea? John does not try to be clever. He answers, My Lord, you know. So, beloved, when Jesus asks you a question, it is a form of intimacy. Do not let it pass by. And he longs for you to ask him questions too. He told me to tell you, please ask me some questions. I want to engage with you. Think about what you want to ask him and then ask him. I would advise you to do it aloud so you can hear yourself. It strengthens your faith. The enemy hates it, of course, and Jesus loves to hear your voice. And beloved, be alert when a person asks you a spiritual question, even if it seems to be the wrong question. Reply like Jesus did. Reply with a question to help the person verbalize his thoughts. Discern. Don't be in a hurry to give the answer and, uh, or show off your knowledge. Help the seeker to find him for themselves, as the shepherd girl does. You must know by now Jesus is the answer to every question in any case. And in closing, by now you must realize that spiritual warfare is first and foremost all about intimacy with Jesus. And here's a prophecy by Bill Yont, which is a beautiful example of this intimacy that portrays spiritual warfare of the highest degree. The devil is telling you that you are just going in circles. But the Lord says, we are right on schedule. Wait while I have you in my holding pattern. I am holding you. You may think the enemy or other people are holding you up from accomplishing my plans for you. But it is I who am holding you in my arms and I like it. My love, you are not going in circles as the enemy is telling you. You are not going in circles with purpose, without purpose. This is your moment to worship me and to dance with the king in high places. When you hold and embrace someone when you dance, it appears like you are going in circles. But I guarantee you, my love, something is happening. Intimacy is taking place. When you dance with the one who sits upon the circle of the earth, who cares if you go in circles? You are supposed to. You must begin to realize you are seated together with me in heavenly places. This is our heavenly holding pattern. And when you are dancing in circles with me, the king, you are dancing circles around the enemy and you are confusing him. So in your waiting, beloved, while we are waiting to get free from the lockdown, while we are waiting for the rapture, go ahead and worship 
and love me. I'm waiting for you to do just that. Please let me hold you in my arms. I promise you, it will cause me to fill the whole earth with my glory. For I desire that the whole earth will be filled with my glory and with the knowledge of the Lord. But this will only happen when the bride, the entire bride, begins to dance with the king of the universe. David is a perfect example of this dance. He was a shepherd boy of about 14 years when he was brought to the palace of King Saul. Saul was being tormented by an evil spirit. He disobeyed the Lord and did the offering to God himself because according to him, Samuel tarried and the soldiers were getting restless. And because of his disobedience, Holy Spirit left Saul and the evil spirit moved in. Samuel reminded him that obedience is better than sacrifice. So David was brought to the palace to soothe Saul's mind by playing his harp. That was in the natural. What happened in the spiritual realm is that the anointing upon David came through as he played and then the evil spirit had to calm down. David was already anointed to be the next king when he was brought there. Saul did not know this, but the evil spirit did. So when David played his harp and sang praises to his God, the evil spirit and Saul would rise up and he would try to spear David. Saul was a very strong, accurate soldier and there's no way he could have missed David, except if David was maybe also dancing whilst playing and singing. He was dancing circles around the enemy. Beloved, when life gets hard, when you get attacked or falsely accused or rejected, when you feel depressed, when you feel this is the last thing I want to do now is dance, that is exactly the moment you must get up and dance. Dance on all the unrighteousness and corruption. Dance on your high mountain of trials, troubles and tribulations. Lift your hands in worship to the King. Kneel down in adoration and prostrate yourself in worship. Proclaim and declare and boast out loud the beauty, the strength, the might, the power, the love and the faithfulness of your God. And then bow down and kiss the sun. We are planning to have a worship and testimonies and intercessors spiritual warfare dancing evening after the lockdown is lifted. This is important as those of you who have done the camp will know. The teaching on Song of Songs is 50% of the intimacy. The other 50% is the intimacy taking place when you actually as a group dance together for your king and then with your king. Pray with us that this will happen soon. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. That we can trust Holy Spirit to be the interpreter and counselor and teacher of this word. Thank you that there will be an impartation for you said so. 
Thank you that you are urgent in turning lilies and thorn bushes into dancing warrior brides. For soon there will not be enough of us. When your glory comes and the spiritual warfare will increase in the midst of all the wonderful things that we are waiting for. The last refreshing before you come to fetch your bride. Let us not duck and dive spiritual warfare anymore. Let us not make it something, a whole theology about it. Let us just go deeper and deeper into intimacy with you and learn to dance with you and know that will be the strongest form of spiritual warfare and it terrifies the enemy. We thank you for your blood. We thank you for your armor. Thank you for your ministering and warring angels. We place everything we learn tonight under the precious blood of Jesus. And we say to the enemy, you will use nothing or take nothing or remove nothing under the blood of Jesus. You will not use it against anyone who listened to this podcast. You will not come with any backlash. We bind you, we gag you and we bind you. We rebuke you in Jesus' name. You have no rights. You can't dance. You don't know intimacy. Thank you, Father. As the world goes crazy, your bride gets lovesick. Amen. Let's proceed with the statements of the blood. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me from the hand of Satan. The blood of Jesus has redeemed me from every curse. In Christ Jesus, I am free from every curse and blessed with all blessings. I shall be blessed in my place and my affairs shall be blessed. I shall be blessed at my work and the fruits of my labor shall be blessed. I shall be blessed when I come in and I shall be blessed when I go out. The Lord will cause my enemies who rise up against me to be defeated before my face. They will come at me from one direction but will flee from me in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on my bonds and on everything I put my hand to. And the Lord, my God, will bless me in the land he is giving me. The Lord will establish me as his holy people. Then all the people on earth will see that I am called by the name of the Lord and they will fear me. The Lord will grant me abundant prosperity. He will open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on my land in season and to bless all the works of my hands. So I will lend to many nations but will borrow from none. The Lord will make me the head, not the tail, and I will always be at the top, never at the bottom. The blood of Jesus has sealed an eternal covenant for me. The blood of Jesus has reconciled me to and granted me peace with God, the Father, all people and all of creation. The blood of Jesus has granted me forgiveness of all my sins. The blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses me from all sin. The blood of Jesus justifies me from all condemnation. So all the accusations of the devil against me are nullified. He makes me righteous as though I have never sinned. The blood of Jesus sanctifies me 
and consecrates me. So I become belonging to my Lord, dedicated to Him, set apart for His ministry as His bride. The blood of Jesus cleanses my conscience from acts that lead to death, so that I may serve the living God. The blood of Jesus makes me enter the most holy place, the King's chamber, the place of intimacy, to serve the Holy God. The blood of Jesus grants me victory over Satan and all his principalities. He's given me the authority that was given to him, and he has authority over all power in heaven and on earth. The blood of Jesus is the reason for my everlasting rejoicing and dancing. Amen.